Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future developments such as those from Bob DiCrescenzo and Ken Siders will affect you in the future. You are interested... Really? Wait, wait a minute. Who, who wrote this crap? Future develop for future developments will affect you in the future that, that that's kind of redundant and what's this thing about in the future for that's where we're going to spend the rest of it. where indicates a place future is not a place future is a time so shouldn't it be when you and i are going jeez you know what folks i'm so sorry about that i'm so sorry about that that terrible intro, but uh, yeah, I'm trying to put a decent podcast together. There was demand for a homebrew podcast about 7,800. So many people wanted to hear a podcast that dealt with those games. Phil didn't want to do it, so I stepped in and said, here, let me try it. And then you know what happens? Some guy in an Angora sweater comes up to me and says, here, use this as your intro. It'll be a hit, I guarantee you. But who, who wrote this? I mean, come on. I mean, I just want to talk about some homebrew titles. And, you know, see what comes up out of it, you know? Anyway, um, I'm sorry about this, folks, but uh, I'm just, let me just skip to the, to the very end of this stupid thing here. Um, let's see, blah, 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 guilty, guilty, innocent, what? Uh, I'll, I'll just go straight to the last sentence here. What could go wrong? My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about indie titles from the Atari Age Store. Um, hi everybody, this is kind of a rather awkward intro, um, because how else do you introduce the zeroth episode by yourself of... A brand new podcast but anyway this is the atari 7800 homebrew podcast so if that's not what you're looking for then either your aggregator messed up or you're drunk or you can't read or whatever i don't know i don't know but uh, anyway thank you for listening uh, seems customary to do an episode zero for a brand new podcast so here we are and my name is sean um sometimes known as janitor sean um, known online as dauber i'm going to be your host for the foreseeable future some of you may recognize me from Pie Factory Podcast, um, on which my co-host Jimmy G and I talk about arcade games from the home gamer's perspective, typically. Or perhaps you've read my blog at pacmaniacs.wordpress.org, and you can also find me on Atari Age using the aforementioned handle, Dauber. First and foremost, I want to, nay, need to, extend a major thank you to Phil the No Swear Gamer for well, getting it all started. If you didn't get a chance to catch his Atari 7800 game by game podcast, please give it a listen. I'm sure it's still available. He doesn't do the show anymore. He's completed every US release, uh, including prototypes too, actually. Um, I'll put a link to his archived shows in my show notes. A long time ago, I asked Phil if he'd be covering homebrews as well, because Ferg covers homebrews on the Atari 2600 game by game podcast. But he said, no, nah, I'm too much of a 7800 purist. I just want to stick to the games that were officially released during its initial run. So he gave me his blessing to carry on with this homebrew podcast. So what's this podcast going to be talking about? 
Well, specifically, it's going to talk about the homebrew games that have been produced for the Atari 7800 over the years. And again, games, but not necessarily a lot of focus on the homebrew hardware, although you will hear me mention pieces of homebrew hardware from time to time, such as the Uber Arcade joystick, which sadly is no longer being produced, and the Aladdin controllers, and most definitely the Concerto card and uh, the expansion module when they're finally released for everybody who wants one. What you are not going to hear on this podcast, however, first of all, unfortunately, those of you who are used to Phil the No Swear Gamer, you're not going to hear a robot sidekick or a robot announcer. This is all me. Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't welcome a robot sidekick, but uh, as for now, just me. All doing it myself. The music, the recording, the post-production, everything is done by this guy you're listening to right here. And speaking of music, another thing you're not going to hear, you're not going to hear theme music that's done 8-bit style or electronic or otherwise uh, makes you think, ooh, this is good gaming intro music or something like that. No, that's a little bit cliche. I like organic music, um, so any music you're going to hear on this show that's not actually from the specific game, it's performed by actual instruments. And one big thing you're not going to hear, which is carried over from Phil's uh, 7800 podcast, you're not going to hear profane language. Um, I'm going to get into a little mini rant here because personally, language of any type doesn't bother me in the least, except, well, except maybe racist language. But I agree with the late, great George Carlin that you ought to be more concerned with the intent behind the use of the language than the actual language itself. And, you know, think about it. The only reason any language has bad words is that someone somewhere in history arbitrarily decided that certain words are bad. If anything, it was class warfare, really. Because, for example, there are many different words for, um, well, let's just say solid bodily waste. The monosyllabic version with the Anglo-Saxon etymology is considered bad. I'm not actually going to say it, but, you know. Uh, the polysyllabic Latin-based word excrement is perfectly acceptable despite both words meaning the exact same thing. Well, it goes back to uh, in medieval times when the upper class spoke Latin and French and the lower class, the commoners, spoke Anglo-Saxon. So you had the upper class refuse to talk like a commoner. And this is also why we mistakenly think that the word vulgar means obscene, profane, or whatever else you have. Truth is the word vulgar simply means common. I will not speak with such vulgar language. Basically means you're too rich to talk like a commoner. But uh, sorry about that rant, folks. Uh, long story short, this podcast will be safe for work. It will be safe for family, safe for kids, and usually even safe for listening at your church or mosque or synagogue or whatever else have you. I promise to keep this podcast G-rated, or at the absolute most PG-rated. Unlike with Phil the No Swear Gamers show, however, I am not going to forbid the mentioning of any games, including Professor Pac-Man. Uh, by the way, if anybody wants to do a homebrew of uh, Professor Pac-Man, you have all my disrespect. But yeah, I'm not going to forbid the mentioning of any games, and that includes Mr. Do, which yeah, I know it's a ripoff of Dig Dug, but... Personally, I love the game nonetheless. Now, if I could just get somebody to do that game for the 7800. Also, just as Phil did with his show, I welcome listener audio submissions. And I'll repeat this later at the end of the episode, but audio and text submissions can be sent to me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. That's F-A-B, the number 4, it.com. 
Also, unlike with Phil's show and my other podcasts, for that matter, Pie Factory Podcast, I will not be giving these games any ratings. Part of the reason is that, well, quite frankly, most, if not all, the homebrews I've played over the years have one thing in common. They're all fantastic. I have my own personal favorites, but the fact is they're all very well done, so it wouldn't really be fair to give any one homebrew higher praise than another. Also, I kind of fear that if I give one game a lower rating than another, it might discourage somebody from buying that given game. The last thing I want to do is discourage anybody from investing their money on any of these games and uh, giving these homebrew developers the money that they worked hard for. But enough of that for now. As for now, I'm going to assume that uh, those of you who are listening to me don't know, you, you don't know me. So I'll tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Sean Courtney. I'm 42 years old. I was born and raised outside of Chicago, and I currently live in the city of Chicago with my wife and our beagle. I lived at the Jersey Shore for about eight years a while back, but I'm in Chicago now. Um, and total uh, disclosure, uh, what's the best way to say this? Um, for full disclosure here, video games actually are not my primary interest, believe it or not. Music is actually my biggest passion. In fact, the theme song you hear at the beginning and end of the show, I play all the instruments on it, except, well, except for the drums. I, I don't know how to play drums and I don't own a drum kit. So the drums and the theme um, are actually pre-recorded loops, courtesy of GarageBand. <laughs> Hope to learn to play drums someday, though. I'd really love to. But to me, the Beatles are the end all, the be all. And um, I'm a major Brian Wilson fan. In fact, my wife and I met because of the Pet Sounds album. That's a long story in and of itself. As for what I do for a living, I am a website developer, and I also teach test prep courses part-time. So just wanted to give you a little bit about me. But despite video games not being my first love, I really do love video games, especially the classics. I don't really care much for newer systems. I mean, yeah, they look good, they sound good, but from my personal experience, they just don't have the replayability of the games that I grew up with back in the 80s. They, they just don't hold my attention, especially the ones that involve hours or sometimes days of investment or games that require you to finish a few levels, beat a boss character, repeat that process a few times, then beat the CEO character, then the game is over. That was uh, very common in the 90s. The games that I love are the classics. Why? Well, because a lot of them, in fact, dare I say most of them, the game doesn't actually end. It just keeps getting harder and harder and harder until you lose all your lives. And it basically encourages you to keep playing and beat your score. So I love that challenge. I really, really do. I love it when games are just the kind you can play over and over and over. Why do you think I'm still playing these games after 35 years? I grew up playing Atari 2600 games with uh, my uncle and my cousins. In 1982, I asked for the Coleco tabletop Pac-Man game for Christmas because I'm a big Pac-Man fan to this day. And I thought that that Coleco tabletop game was basically going to be a miniature replica in full of the arcade game. I mean, hey, I was, what, eight years old at the time. I didn't know any better. Uh, basically, think about this. If you ever seen uh, one of those Coleco tabletops with uh, Raspberry Pis running uh Mame on them. That's pretty much what I thought the Coleco Pac-Man game was. I thought it was going to be an emulated version of the arcade game. Boy, was I wrong. But what happened was on Christmas morning, there was a big box under the tree. It was addressed to my brother and me. 
And we opened it up, and it was an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. It was a it was a four switch, uh, four switch wood grain. I think it was one of the last four switch wood grains off the press, actually, because right after that they switched to the black Vader model, as we call it. But there's a picture of my brother and me just after we opened the uh, the present, and I have the biggest grin in my face. And I'll definitely put that picture in the show notes, especially given the time of year that it is right now. <laughs> It came with combat as the pack-in game, and of course, because I love Pac-Man, my parents bought the 2600 Pac-Man and put that in the box as well. And I actually loved the 2600 Pac-Man, and still do, even though I knew then and I still know now that it bore little resemblance to the arcade version. And that weekend, we all went to the store in Bradley, Illinois. I was living in Bourbon A at the time. But there was a store in Bradley, Illinois called K's Merchandise Mart. Um, If you're familiar with what service merchandise used to be, K's used to be kind of like that. But uh, that weekend, K's had a bunch of Atari games for sale. So my brother and I, we we, we got a few bucks for Christmas from various relatives. So we planned to pull that money together and buy a few Atari games. We bought Street Racer. I don't know why. I really don't remember. I'm guessing that might have just been an excuse to use the paddle controller. Um, I don't really know for sure. Uh, we also were choosing between Superman and Outlaw for some reason. And I pushed for Outlaw because I'd played it before. I knew what it was all about, but I didn't really know anything about the Superman game. And uh, tell you the truth, folks, to this day, I don't regret that because I've since played Superman and I quite frankly don't like it at all. Uh, we wanted one more game. We had enough money for one more. My brother wanted Missile Command, and uh, he's 10 years older than me, so I was kind of afraid that just his age would win out, But because uh, I, I really wanted Defender. I, I'd played the 2600 Defender before, and I really loved it, and I, to be quite truthful, I still do, but Missile Command did win out, not because my brother's 10 years older and was much bigger than me at the time, but simply because it was cheaper. So, uh, so that had to win out. That wasn't a big loss though, because missile command was excellent. I always liked it. So I was fine with it really. Um, at some point, probably a couple of years later, I acquired a Vectrex from a couple of cousins who had one. They got tired of it and it had five or six games in it complete inbox. And I mean, complete inbox, com- not just with the cartridge, the manual and the overlay, but also the paper sleeve that the uh, the overlays would uh, go into as well so i ha- it had everything and um i had eventually acquired the star trek game for it because there was a place uh not far from me that ha- that had um i believe a ton of overstock of that for sale so i went there got it for like six bucks complete in box of course but i eventually got bored with the vectrex and i gave it to another cousin who was maybe five years old at the time um kind of regretted doing that later uh, over the years, I kind of lost touch with uh, with that cousin. In fact, with a lot of my cousins, if not all of them, unfortunately. Um, no bad blood or anything. I'm just not good at keeping in touch with people. But um, a few years ago, I did see the cousin that I gave my Vectrex to. But it was our grandmother's funeral, so I didn't really think it would be an appropriate time to say, oh, by the way, Alex, uh, remember that Vectrex? Do you still have? <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, let's just, let's just respect grandma for now. <laughs> but... I also had some exposure to Intellivision, plenty of it actually, because the same cousins who had the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, they eventually got it, they got an Intellivision, and uh, one of my good friends from childhood had it as well, and I really dug it. I liked it a lot, especially the games that use the voice synthesis module. And many years later, as an adult, I'm talking two thousand six, I got an Intellivision for myself and a bunch of games off of eBay. But you know what? I was kind of disappointed. 
same games I played at my cousin's house and my friend's house, and I just wasn't liking them, and I couldn't remember why I did like them. The graphics and sound didn't impress me at all. I was like, really? We thought this was better than Atari? <laughs> but uh, The gameplay was kind of awkward, especially Bomb Squad, which I used to love, but man, that game takes forever. <laughs> uh, the Activision games really disappointed me because here's the Intellivision, supposed to have like higher capability than the 2600, supposed to be 16-bit, but you know what? The games weren't any different from the 2600, despite the Intellivision being a more advanced system. So I was like, really? I mean... I'm having a lot more fun with the Atari here. So I sold that in television on Craigslist and I just went back to the 2600. Uh, fun, yeah, funny story. When I sold that 20, when I sold that in television on Craigslist, uh, I was actually on my way to the old town school of folk music in uh, Chicago here. And I told uh, the, the buyer to meet me at such and such a bus stop. I mean, I literally just walked right past him. He handed me the money and I handed him the, uh, the Intellivision and we just kept on moving. I don't know why we didn't stop and say hi or anything, but uh, it was just an instant transaction. I was on my way. But uh, over the years, I did have exposure to other systems. Uh, my next door neighbors had a 2600 eventually after uh, I got mine. In fact, we used to uh, borrow games back and forth. We both had small collections, but we had virtually no overlap. So that was a pretty cool combination there. They eventually upgraded to a 5200, which was okay, but it didn't really excite me enough to want one. I'd seen the NES and those demo kiosks at like Kmart's and other stores like that. And I'd played around with them, but it, they didn't really impress me enough to want one because especially... When the NES came out, I had just gotten a Commodore 64C as um, an eighth grade graduation present uh, back in 1988, and I really liked that Commodore 64, and my logic was, well, the NES graphics and sound are pretty much on par with the Commodore 64, and I could learn how to program my own games, so, you know, if I got that board, I could make up my own games, and by the way, to this day, I don't know how to program games, so a lot of good that did. <laughs> But I think it was 1992, maybe 1991, my brother got a Sega Genesis um, after his brief stint with the Atari 65XE, which, by the way, had a great port of Dig Dug. I liked the Genesis, but I didn't love it. You know, there were some great games on it, but not enough for me to really turn away from the Atari still. <laughs> but problem with the Genesis for for the games that weren't sports games, pretty much like I mentioned before, you know, level boss, level boss, level boss, CEO, end. And I wanted classics. And uh, my brother eventually traded in the Genesis and got a Super NES, which I didn't like at all. I, I didn't like the, the SNES. But around that time is when I upgraded my Commodore 64 to an Amiga, which is a platform that I was fiercely loyal to for the next 13 years. Now notice that going from the 2600 all the way up through Amiga, I've yet to mention my experiences with the 7800. Well, here's the deal. I knew when it was out, I had heard about it. I knew it was 2600 compatible, but that's it. I never really saw it until I met my, uh, my friend and podcasting partner, Jimmy G in 1992, that I actually had a chance to see a 7800. He had one, Still does, actually. So I went over to his apartment. He lived just down the street from me, actually. And he fired up the 7800, and we played Ball Blazer and Crossbow, Asteroids, and Food Fight, and also a few 2600 titles. And I really, really liked what I saw, especially Food Fight, which, in my opinion, is the most amazing 
non-homebrew arcade conversion you can get for the 7800. If you have an Atari 7800, if you are a new 7800 owner especially, get Food Fight. That is the killer app for that system. But anyway, let's flash forward to 2006. I was actually living in New Jersey, but I got a promotion that moved me back home to Chicago. But it was going to be a rough time for me because I had to move to Chicago by myself. My wife had to stay behind in New Jersey to finish up her master's degree. So what I did was, you know, it was, I was lonely. You know, I was uh, upset that my wife wasn't with me, you know. So what I did to pass the time a lot was play Atari. And so I played all my Atari games. I built up my collection. And while I was at it, I was like, you know what? I really want a 7800. So a fellow on Atari age, I believe it was Breakpack, he sold me an Atari 7800, two Pro-Line joysticks, and a few games, and for 35 bucks, great deal, I think. Then there's, there was this store just outside the city in uh, Norwich, Illinois. In fact, it's still there. It's called Video Games Etc. Well, it used to be called Video Games Etc. Now it's called Video Games Then and Now. Um, it's run by Sean Kelly, whose name is legendary in Atari home consoles <laughs> these days. But um, a lot of people on Atari age recommended it. So I went there and I saw games for every system I could think of and some systems that I'd literally never even heard of, in fact. And the prices ranged from cheap to reasonable. Nothing was I nothing I would say was out of line for what it should have been priced. It was all great prices still is to this day. So I grabbed the few 2,600 games that I didn't have, and I also uh, bought some 7,800 games to beef up my new 7,800 collection. So by the time I got home, my 7,800 collection consisted of Pole Position 2, which was the pack-in, of course, Ms. Pac-Man, Food Fight, Asteroids, Crossbow, Ball Blazer with the Maroon N label, which to this day is the only version I've ever seen of Ball Blazer. <laughs> Uh, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Tower Toppler, One-on-One, -on -one, Joust, and Centipede. And of course, over the last 10 years or so, I've built up that collection pretty significantly and recently started upgrading my loose carts, uh, both 2600 and 7800, to complete in box copies. Now, obviously, we all know the Atari 7800 is backward compatible with the 2600, and I'm assuming that uh, if you're listening to this particular podcast, you know full well that there are some idiosyncrasies of some Atari 2600 games that are not 7800 compatible. Well, I'm actually one of the lucky ones. I think my 7800 is one of the last ones that were ever made. There's no hint of any expansion port or anything. There's no cutout or anything to prove that there ever was one. And my 7800 so far has worked flawlessly with everything I've tried on it, including games that aren't supposed to work including Robot Tank and the Starpath Supercharger. Well, actually, mine is an Arcadia Supercharger, but hey, who's counting? So I'm terribly lucky. Everything works in this thing that should work in it. About a year or so ago, I modded my 7800 with one of those AV kits that lets you plug the console directly into the TV with RCA ports. These mods are supposed to give you crystal clear picture quality, and at least in my case, it absolutely does. Now, I know Phil the No Swear Gamer mentioned this issue with his modded 7800, and uh, sadly, I have the same issue. It seems that in games that use both the original Tia sound chip and the Pokey sound chip, and actually, now that I think about it, I think the only such game that I have that does so is the Beef Drop Homebrew. The Tia sound is very loud, but the Pokey sound is very quiet. 
Ball Blazer, however, which is entirely pokey, sounds fine. So I don't know what the deal is. Um, I haven't had a chance to try it yet, but I'm told that the issue can be resolved by attaching a resistor or a potentiometer to the audio wire in the AV mod. So I'm going to try that. But uh, So that's something you got to watch out for when you're modding your 7800. As do many other 7800 users, I find the ProLine joysticks very difficult to use. They, they can be okay on games that don't need the fire button, but when you do need to use that fire button a lot, like Centipede and Asteroids, forget it. My wrist gets really, really tired really fast. I did have a ProLine joystick that was modified with a ball top by Yerky on Atari Age, and everybody was raving about those things, and sure enough, it was pretty cool. But it didn't really help with the fatigue your hand gets with the fire button. And yeah, I know about the D-pad controllers that they released in Europe for the 7800, but the problem is there's another issue there. I am right-handed at playing video games, meaning I expect the directional, the joystick, whatever, to be on the right with the buttons on the left. That's how the Atari 2600 was. That's how most of the games I played in the arcade were. But that's how I need things to be. So some time ago, I got the Uber Arcade joystick, and I had them put the stick on the right, the buttons on the left. And let me tell you, that thing is amazing. It really is a great, it's a great eight-way joystick. Um, sometimes they use the CX-40 joystick controller. It came with a 2600 for four-way games. Eventually, I got one of those Sega Sports Pads, which is a trackball that's, uh, I think, for the Sega Master System. So I use that with the Seagull 78 adapter when I play Centipede, and it works amazingly well, actually. And uh, earlier in the year, I got the Ed Ladin Supreme 78 controller, which is awesome. It has two sets of fire buttons, one set on the left, one set on the right, joystick in the middle, so you can play right-handed, you can play left-handed. And you can also change the stick between four-way and eight-way simply by flipping open the control panel. It was expensive, but more than worth every penny. I'll put a link to Ed Ladin's website in the show notes. Now, the Uber Arcade Stick, which, uh, as I said before, is no longer made, that's what I consider to be a piece of homebrew hardware. So this is where the homebrew part of this podcast comes in. So how exactly did I get into homebrews? Well... 2006, my friend Jimmy G, he lost his job, and Bob Crescenzo, a.k.a. Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age, sent him a copy of Pac-Man Plus, which he was kind of, uh, it was kind of a work in progress back then, and it was Jim's favorite Pac-Man game, and Jim invited me over to see it in action, and um, to say that I was impressed would be a tragic understatement, so that was my first exposure to 7800 homebrews. Now, over the years, I've acquired many homebrew games, and I certainly intend to acquire more, and this podcast will certainly give me an excuse to fill in the missing pieces of my homebrew collection. Now, if any of you don't have any homebrews for the 7800, then go online to the Atari Age store right now and buy at least one. Uh, there's also uh, a small selection on gooddealgames.com as well, and no matter which ones you choose, no matter which homebrews you choose, you're going to get something that you're going to love. You really will. They're really great. And this is true for both the 2600 and 7800 homebrews, but these homebrews tend to be of outstanding quality and make your system do things you didn't know was possible. I have a theory that the reason the quality of the homebrews is so amazing is that homebrew developers don't have deadlines, so they can take all the time they need to learn how to program the system, learn how to tweak the games, QA and test the games, and all that good stuff. But during the 7800's life on the market, 
Developers didn't have that luxury. They usually just had a few weeks to go from, as we say in the development business, cradle to grave on a game, and uh, therefore they didn't have enough time to guarantee the most wonderful product in the world. Now, earlier in this episode, I mentioned a beef drop. And you know what, dear listener, or listeners, I hope, or at least someday maybe listeners, beef drop is going to be the first title that I cover, and that's going to be in the next episode, episode one. My plan right now is to cover one game per episode with a new episode coming out every two weeks. That could be subject to change, of course, but right now that's how I think this thing's going to go. If I have time, I might bump it up to two games, but for now, let's stick with one and see how it goes, all right? If you want to play along and submit your score, you're absolutely welcome to. Um, I know that on the 10 Pence Arcade podcast over in England, they do that a lot. Uh, they'll announce the game and people people will send in their scores. For the record, the score that uh, I'm going to be using for myself for episode one is 182,100. That's default settings, difficulty default, just turn on the console, start the game. Oh, and by the way, another thing. I mentioned the Ed Ladin Seagull 78 adapter. What that is, is it's a adapter that allows you to play with Sega Genesis controllers on your 7800 with two functional fire buttons, an A button and a B button. Well, I don't know what it, which ones they correspond to on the Sega Genesis, but uh, I'm talking about 7800 button A and button B. They both work individually. And I happen to have a spare one that I would like to give away. So I think um, it's a little bit too soon to give away for next episode. I want to build up some listenership. So let's just say with episode number three, this is episode zero, but for episode number three, I will give away a Seagull 78 adapter. Now, how do you enter yourself in this giveaway? Well, simply send an email to homebrew78 at fab4it.com and tell me what your favorite homebrew is, or if you don't have a favorite homebrew or don't have any homebrews yet, uh, which homebrew you were really, really, really aching to get and why. Or if you do have homebrews, but there's one you don't have and you really, really want, say which one it is and say why. And by the way, that homebrew78 at fab4it.com address, that's an email that you can reach me in general for uh, show submissions, comments, whatever. There's also an Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast Facebook page, and there is also a thread for this podcast on the Gaming Websites and Publications Forum on the Atari Age Message Board, so you can also uh, comment on that, and I'll probably also put something on Atari.io. Now, Phil the Nosewear Gamer always signs off his productions by saying, Games are fun, but always keep first things first. And I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. And the idea behind that sentiment might even sometimes get in the way of getting this podcast out on time. After all, I have two jobs. I have another podcast. I have a wife who would like to see me now and then. But I do promise to try my best to give you a quality podcast. And having said all that, I should come up with my own sign-off. I guess it should be something like this. Please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again with Episode 1, Beef Drop. So long. My friend, you have heard this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove it didn't happen? Perhaps on your way to the Atari Age store or Good Deal Games, 
You will pass someone in the dark and you will never know it, for they will be a naysayer. We once laughed at the possibility of Zookeeper on the 2600, the Hokey Chip, the Gumby Chip, and even a tethered space duel. And now some of us laugh at the XM. God help our pro systems in the future. Thank you.